You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. On today's show, we are going to be talking about health optimization, and I should say that we are going to be speaking with a medical doctor, but please do not take what you hear on the show as medical advice. Do not make life-altering medical decisions based on this show alone, but please consult with your physician before making any major medical changes. Now, as you know, we consider financial independence a life optimization strategy, and once we have created even a small amount of space One of the things you start looking at is obviously your finances, but right behind that, your personal health. Maybe for the first time in your life, you actually have the space to figure out what would it take to get myself to that next level, whatever that is. Well, we've talked about a lot of strategies in passing, but we wanted to come back and do a deep dive into the specific tactics, stuff that we're struggling with personally, but also the cutting edge of health optimization. And what's so fascinating about this is Brad, who listens to about 45 podcasts a day, aside from ours, was actually listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast with Dom D'Agostino. And in that podcast, Dom references Scott Scher as a physician on the cutting edge of health optimization. Now, Immediately, Brad took pause because he went to high school with a fellow by the same name. Upon a little research, finds out that it is the same Scott. So obviously, he had to get in touch. He reached out to Scott and asked him if he'd come on the show, and Scott was all in. So uh, yeah, to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan. I'm doing quite well. Yeah, this is one I've been looking forward to for a while. And yeah, like you said, we have been kind of delving into these strategies just from the layman's perspective. But then the fact that we found a doctor who is at the cutting edge of this, and then not less that it's someone I went to high school with and played varsity soccer with way back in the day on Long Island, New York, (laughs) is insane, right? So what's cool, yeah, I I was listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast with Dom D'Agostino, who himself is an an, an expert on, on many of these topics, and he mentioned Scott. And I'm like, wow, is it conceivable this is the same guy? I did some research, I'm like, yep, same guy. So Got in touch and here he is. So Scott, with that, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you guys for having me. And it's fantastic to be reconnected, Brad. And yeah, varsity soccer. Absolutely. It's been (laughs) some years and to get your message, the beginning of the year was just a fantastic resurgence of nostalgia in some ways and to kind of bring things together from what you've been doing and what my life path has been is, is really a phenomenal confluence, I would say. It's just fantastic to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I think the burning question in our audience mind, if you had one word to describe Brad as a soccer player, what would that be? One word. Man, it's been a while. I'll give you five. I would <laughs> 23 years ago, right? <laughs> if not longer. Man, I would say the, the way I've always thought about Brad since I've known him was as thoughtful. He wasn't somebody who did things without putting planning into them first. and always seemed to have a good head on his shoulders. 
That was for sure. He was, I think maybe, I don't remember, are you a year or two older than me, Brad? I don't remember exactly. One year. So I always sort of remember like sort of looking up to this, this guy who had his shit together when the rest of us were just trying to figure it out. <laughs> shocking. Super shocking. <laughs> well, let's talk. Were you, you did... already financially independent then? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he had a plan. <laughs> well, wait, wait. I want, I want to say that you do, you have figured it out as well. And just to drop just a few of your credentials for you, you're the director of integrative hyperbaric medicine and health optimization at hyperbaric medical solutions. You're a board certified internal medicine physician specializing in health optimization medicine and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Now, while health optimization obviously is something that just, you know, as a buzzword, we get very excited about hyperbaric mm-hmm. oxygen therapy means nothing to me. Like that's the first time I've heard it. <laughs> <laughs> why, why, why are you so fascinated by that? Well, it was actually the way I delved into the world of integrative medicine. For me, my story actually starts off with my upbringing in New York, uh, where I knew Brad, where my dad's a chiropractor. So I grew up the father of of somebody who was definitely outside the box when you're looking at what medicine could be. And so my evolution, it started off very out of the box, very much, you know, allopathic or conventional medicine was actually, you know, almost bad in some ways. Initially, when I grew up, you didn't need it, especially if you looked at things proactively instead of reactively. I, I really enjoyed that upbringing. I enjoyed playing soccer with Brad. I enjoyed a lot of the work that he was doing, but I also realized it was pretty limited in some ways as far as the breadth of care that he could provide. And so I went into conventional medical school back in the early 2000s, thinking that I could find a way to kind of bridge the gap between what was then called alternative medicine and conventional medicine. Now we have lots of other words. We have integrative medicine, functional medicine, wellness medicine, holistic medicine, all these other words. But Back then, it was either alternative or conventional. And so I I actually found out about hyperbaric oxygen therapy in a very interesting place, actually in a trauma center in Baltimore where I was training, 30-hour shifts every three nights. It was pretty intense. In the basement, there was this gigantic chamber that they were using for wounds, using for carbon monoxide poisoning, using for infections. And I saw some amazing things happen in this chamber, people that were on ventilators or respirators going in and like walking out of the chamber afterwards. And I was kind of floored by it, learning about the technology, learning more about it over the preceding years or over the the years after, I just realized how fantastic this particular therapy was for healing. So that was my first initial foray into what I could do as an internal medicine physician that wasn't a standard doc, but more about integrating some work that was being done in this country and also other countries, and also just understanding the baseline physiology of what was happening in those chambers, which was simply just increasing the amount of oxygen in circulation to just catalyze wound healing from the inside out. So that's how I got involved. Scott, how common is hyperbaric oxygen therapy now? Like, Is this something that people in any city in America can look into, or is this very specialized? There's different ways that somebody can engage in their discovery or search for hyperbaric therapy. There's three different types of chambers. There is chambers that you find in hospitals that are called multi-place chambers. These are chambers where you can have multiple people all in the same time in the chamber itself getting treated. And those are usually used in hospitals because they're more acute care kinds of things. You can have people inside of them that are tending to the people inside the chamber if they're very sick. Also found at diving locations, so places where you go scuba diving and you could have something called the bends or decompression illness. Have you guys heard of that before? Definitely. The decompression illness is something that 
was actually the reason for hyperbaric therapy being invented back in the early 1900s as to treat the bends or decompression illness. So you find these multi-place chambers at those facilities, at those locations, either at hospitals or at diving locations. The monoplace chambers are these hard chambers that go not as deep of a depth, but they're more versatile in the sense of not just being in hospitals, but also being in outpatient clinics. And those have a lot of different indications. And then you have the third type of chamber, which are called soft chambers or mild hyperbaric chambers. And those can be found in people's homes, basically. And there's different indications for all three of them. A lot of it depends on what is needed, what's required by the person going into the chamber. But to answer your question, Brad, in sort of a higher picture, would say that there's still a little bit of a niche therapy, right? Not everybody can afford these chambers if they don't have a medical indication that's covered by their insurance. And there's only 14 of those. And of those 14, only four of them can be treated outside of a hospital. And those are very specific diabetic foot ulcers, patients that have radiation therapy for cancer and get injured, patients that have chronic bone infections, patients that have plastic surgery or other surgeries where they have flaps or grafts that are not looking like they're going to survive the, the actual surgery. Those are all indi covered indications. But where I got a lot of interest and where I started delving into the integrative mindset for hyperbaric therapy was actually started. It actually started with Dom D'Agostino, interestingly enough. That was my initial foray into the optimal performance space because Dom published a paper back in, I think it was 2013, on ketosis, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and cancer, and how the combination could be very, very helpful for this one particular model that he was using. And he was on a podcast with Dave Asprey from Bulletproof. I mean, I think maybe one of Dave's like first 40 podcasts. And when I learned about what Dave was doing and then what Dom obviously had been doing, and he was, he was a friend by that point, it, I think at that point, I discovered sort of what my passion and purpose was, was it wasn't just about hyperbaric medicine. It was about an integrative approach to optimal wellness, using hyperbaric therapy as one of my main tools in that toolbox. Yeah, and Scott, I certainly listened to a Tim Ferriss episode with Dom. I think it was episode 117. It's called On Fasting, Ketosis, and the End of Cancer. So that might be mm. interesting for people to listen to. I guess I, I'm curious, you're in your 30s. You're describing at the beginning, it was just this binary alternative versus conventional medicine. That's all they used to term it. Whereas now you describe integrative, functional, holistic, and this is becoming a lot more commonplace. I'd love for you to just quickly talk through that arc that you've seen from where this was mm -hmm. either, you know, essentially us versus them, right? Alternative versus conventional to now board certified physicians like you are embracing this wholly. Yeah. Um, so when I grew up, my dad was a chiropractor, but for all intensive purposes, was a functional medicine integrative practitioner. The idea really with the, with the terms is that <laughs> they can be used by anybody for anything, right? <laughs> so that's the challenge. But at the time, it was just alternative medicine in a one big box. Now that box has sort of been pieced out a little bit where you have functional medicine providers that are very specifically trained by the Institute for Functional Medicine. You have integrative providers, which are doctors, practitioners that integrate typically something from the allopathic side or the conventional side and something from the alternative side together. And that could be anything. It doesn't have to be anything specific. Uh, it could be that you're using chemotherapy and you're also using ketogenic diets, for example, as an approach for cancer. And that would be an integrative oncologist. Um, or it can be something that's more heavily 
on the alternative side and less on the conventional side, but you're doing both. So the challenge, I think, for your listeners and others is, you know, people are calling themselves everything, integrative docs, all those words that I used, but you don't really know what they're doing unless you look at their practice and see what they're actually treating or what their approach is. So there's been an evolution. I think it's a good one because now you have a lot of these academic facilities around the country, UCSF, Hopkins, University of Maryland, Sloan Kettering even have integrative health departments or categories where inside of those facilities, you have quote unquote integrative health. The spectrum inside of those is very, very different depending on where you go, but at least it's there. At least it's now in like the universal nomenclature where now you have this word that at least gives a sense that there's more to it than just randomized placebo-controlled trials that are double-blinded. Because on the academic side, that's all that existed for a very, very long time and still does to a large degree. But at least there's a small inclination that there's a lot more that can be done with the other side of the, the spectrum, the N equals one category, where even now we're realizing that the future of a lot of research is going to be N equals one studies, actually, just in conglomeration using mathematical models and other statistical analysis. That's very exciting because I think a lot of the work that you're seeing by Tim and by, and by Dave and even Dom to some degree on his own, Dom D'Agostino, even though he's doing a lot of research doing the clinical stuff, or doing the research, I should say. He doesn't do any clinical trials with humans, really. What you're seeing now is you're seeing a lot of that work now coming into the integrative side, which I think is fantastic. And I, I really do believe that that's a really great trajectory. But at the same time, there has to be people, and I hope to be one of those, that can sort of conduct this in a scientific way and make sure that people are staying safe along the process and have a good understanding of what they're doing. Because... I see it on both ends, right? I see these crazy biohackers that are injecting things in themselves without any supervision. <laughs> and I see on the other side, patients that refuse to leave the conventional model. And my hope is that I can kind of bring all that together. That's, that's the practice that I, I try to run. Well, I appreciate you setting that up for us just because I wanted to spend a few minutes talking on two fronts, both on kind of the conventional model, but also kind of just state of affairs here in our own country. I mean, I'm sure it's more around the world, but, you know, obviously we can speak a little bit more to what we're seeing here in the United States. So from the conventional model, I feel like we're really good. We're really good at treating an acute problem for most situations or, you know, something has come to a head. Your blood pressure has spiked to a ridiculous level. Your blood sugar has gotten out of control and stayed there for a really long period of time. And we can give you something to control that. But we're we're really bad at preventative medicine, at stopping that. And it's really hard. You know, you go to the doctor's office, they say, hey, you need to lose 10 percent body fat or 10 percent of your body weight over the next six months or. Mm-hmm. You can go on a pill, you know, one pill a day, and that'll just take care of you. And then six months later, you come back and you've lost one pound. And they're like, mm-hmm. well, let's give you a couple more months. Otherwise, we're going to have to start a pill. And then you start a pill, you know, and then six months later, it's something else. And you're mm-hmm. stacking on another, another, and we're controlling the symptom. But we know about that trickle down effect. And this is not economics. This is medicine. We know about that <laughs> stack. The medicine never goes away, right? You just add something on top of it to treat the latest symptom. That's the one end. And then simultaneous to that, we see like this essentially obesity academic while at the same time we have more information that we ever had. So if you go back into the 70s or 80s, you have the DASH diet talking about cutting fats ruthlessly. But we're fatter than we have ever been. Right. So Mm -hmm. how do we bridge that gap and find the 80 20 of maybe avoiding this? Because preventative has to be the key. Right. A doctor can't fix this with a single pill. 
Yeah, well, I, that was a fantastic overview of what's happening as a state of affairs, especially in this country. But as unfortunately, the U.S. has exported its health throughout the entire rest of the world, unfortunately, as you likely know. And a lot of it starts and stems from what you've described, which is that prevention and longitudinal care in this country is broken. And it's broken because we don't have a true wellness model, a preventative model. We still have a reactive model, even in our clinics that are in primary care. The challenge is that that's where the money is for the insurance companies. There really is no money in prevention care for insurance models because, as you guys probably know, people change insurances all the time. So why does an insurance company invest all this money in you in prevention care when they know that you're going to leave them in five years and go to a different insurance company? Maybe you change jobs, maybe you get a better plan or whatever. And so there's really no incentive to really build that up. And so even on the conventional side, you'll see primary care doctors, pediatricians, internal medicine doctors, family medicine doctors, they get paid so little compared to the specialists because the specialists have that acute care focus. They have that acute intervention focus. And that's where the insurance companies focus their money and their dollars because the rest of it doesn't matter to them. And so you really described an evolution for me, actually, because I started off in a model. I grew up in a model that was very prevention-based, very focused on the body has the ability to heal itself if given the right tools, if the other stuff is taken away in the sense of all that, the, the garbage that we eat, all the garbage that we do is whittled away. You get this beautiful human being that we are in its natural state that can really manifest its own health and cultivate its own health. And so as I was going through medical school and getting tantalized, as everybody does, by dermatology and orthopedic surgery and all these other fields where you get make, make a ton of money, it always came back down to me that if I had all the money in the world, really what kind of doctor would I want to be? And what that came down to for me was I wanted to be a doctor that helped people from the inside out, from the ground up, and that allowed others like me, like doctors like me, to give them that capacity. And I had no clue how that was going to work, honestly, until recently when I realized that there were others out there that were looking to do something similar. And the first place that I looked was a place called functional medicine. And there is a big rise of functional medicine in this country, in the US, which is the idea of trying to get to the root of illness, not just giving pills for things, but more understanding why people are sick. And that really seemed like a fantastic model for me initially. But then I also realized, though, that they were still mostly focusing on disease care. And not that I don't care about diseases and conditions, but what I cared most about was actually the wellness, the health of our cells and how they were functioning at that level. And so the basic cell, like the nucleus, the cytoplasm, the mitochondria, uh, looking at the gut, nobody was really doing this in a way that made a lot of sense to me until I just happened to meet this fantastically smart physician that was trained in the Philippines, uh, but also lived in the US and had a tri-continental practice in Europe. This brilliant guy named Dr. Ted Achacoso, who's become a mentor of mine since then. And he developed something called health optimization medicine, which was exactly what I was looking for. It was this foundational health approach that allowed this cultivation of health as the focus. And yes, people have conditions. Yes, people have issues. But none of that really matters as much, at least initially, until you have a foundation. And then for me, it was realizing that that hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is what I was specializing in primarily at the time, was a fantastic tool to accelerate, synergize, 
and actually allow the body to heal. But if you didn't have that foundation that was cultivated, even those patients didn't do as well as they could do because you didn't have the harnessed ability of that cell to work as well as it could to really manifest in health and manifest in and actually improving some of these over conditions that people were having. So for me, it was the exact process that you were discussing. It was this broken system and how you can actually cultivate health in people in a parallel system that could actually potentially work in conjunction with the, the acute care system and even the primary care system that we have today, but just in a way that focused on health primarily. Yeah, Scott. So this is fascinating to me. And, and I'd love to like really dive into specific topics, right? So you're talking about the, the health of the cell, cultivation of health as the focus. And before you said, there's a lot more that can be done. And I assume it starts with nutrition. This is the fundamental backbone as far as I mm-hmm. see it, but obviously I'm a layman here, right? I'd love for you to talk us through nutrition as you see it, right? Because there are lots of different fad diets. There's things that work for people and they may work for a short time. They may, may work for many, many years, but I'd love to hear your thoughts as, as an expert on this field of like where you see nutrition and how you advise our audience to kind of sift through these different mm-hmm. types of buzzwords that they hear. Yes, it's a really difficult, it's a difficult scenario now. It's fantastic in some ways because there's so many options out there and you can find your, your quote unquote tribe no matter what you believe. And that's obviously on the financial side, you guys know (laughs) that's uh, a double-edged sword. Before I get started, just a disclaimer, none of this is actually medical advice for you, the listener. You know, please go check out some of the stuff that I've done, talk to physicians in your area, other practitioners. And so what I'm going to do now is just give you an overview of what I see and what's been happening in the fields, but um, please do not take this as personal medical advice. Awesome. Yes. To our audience, we are talking to a doc, but none of this should be construed as medical advice. Talk to your physician before making any life altering medical decisions. All right. With that, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, So, yeah. So Brad, to follow up on your question, there's a lot of diets out there. There's a lot of practices out there. There's people who don't eat for 30 days. There's people who eat McDonald's for 30 days. There are people that just eat fat. There are people that just eat protein. There's people that just eat carbs. There's people that just eat fish. <laughs> I mean, I could go along. I mean, just fruit, you know, there's- We're there's running out of, of macros types. to count off. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Uh, just minerals? I don't know. But Alcohol anyway, diet? So, uh, I haven't seen that one be pulled off successfully, but I'm sure it's yeah, out no. there. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, the lamb diet. There's the, anyway, there's the carnivore diet, right? That's another one. That's, that's throw it out there as another one. But so what you often see- is that anybody that changes their diet and takes out shit, and what I mean by that is not actual crap, I mean sugar, processed foods, just those two things will feel better. So it doesn't matter if you're on the carnivore diet, the ketogenic diet, or the vegan diet. As soon as you take out some of that stuff, you are going to feel better. And that's fantastic. So I'm always a fan of people taking out those things. In fact, if somebody comes up to me and asks, me, Scott, what's your advice if I have this philosophy or I have that philosophy? Because I don't pretend that everybody's going to have the same philosophy here. People don't want to kill animals. Some people don't want to kill plants. I don't know why. They just want to eat meat, right? So I'm not going to get into the argument a lot of the times, at least initially with people. So what I'll often say, very simply for people, is if you take out any added sugar, if you take out processed foods, and maybe slightly more controversially, but I don't think so really anymore, is taking out dairy. Those three things will make you 
so much healthier that the rest really, for majority of people to start off with, is details. Getting from there to the next steps, though, as to what you'd like to do really depend on your goals. And the last thing I'll say, because I'm sure you guys have questions, is that the food that we're eating now, the vitamin, mineral, and just pure health content of it is about 50% worse now than it was 50 years ago. So even if you're eating the most organic artisan artichoke or broccoli, that piece of vegetable, those vegetables have significantly less content of vitamins and minerals that we need than it did 50 years ago. So I always have to give my advice and say, I recommend organic, non-processed, low sugar, low carbohydrate, usually in my, in my estimation for most people. But even doing that, it's also still important to make sure that you're getting tested for some of this stuff, to making sure that you still have enough or you're getting enough vitamins, minerals, and nutrients from the food that you eat. So Scott, testing, I, I'm actually curious about that. Just real quick, like if someone did want to test for, to make sure they are getting these vitamins, do they just go into their, their local doctor and say, hey, give me a test for vitamins? Like what, how do, how do you actually do this? Because like I mm -hmm. followed along a lot of people you talked about, you know, Dom and Dave Asprey and Tim Ferriss and like, I would love to do this stuff. I just don't know how. Right, yeah. So unfortunately, going to your conventional doctor will not be the solution here. And because most conventional doctors aren't looking for your health state, they're looking for your disease state, right? So they're trying to cut you off at the pass on some condition that has a very specific pathology or pathophysiology or manifestation in, in real life that will cause you symptoms. But it's not really looking at your foundational health. And that's why I got really involved in this program called Health Optimization Medicine, which, again, as I mentioned, is a foundational approach looking at this cellular health and looking at vitamins and minerals, nutrients, antioxidants, toxin levels at the cellular level. There's a couple different tests that look at this, but they're not in the wheelhouse of a conventional doctor. Some functional medicine doctors will do it, and others in the naturopathic fields and others will do it too. But the key really here to know, Brad, and, and for your audience is that you, know, you don't have to do this right away. The first thing that you really need to think about is how do I clean up my diet so that it's healthier overall in the long term, and maybe in the future you can look at get te getting testing. What I look at specifically is testing called metabolomic testing. It's a big word, but basically metabolites are the things that are happening at the cell in real time. So what's actually happening? How are you making energy? How are you processing your food, your fats, your proteins, your carbohydrates? What do your amino acid le levels look like? Are there toxins floating around? Do you have signs that your gut isn't working well, or that you have yeast, or that you have bacterial overgrowth? We can actually test all of that at the cellular level using something called metabolomics. So that's a specialized type of testing that not a lot of doctors know how to use yet in clinical practice that focuses on health. So that's important, I feel. But even before that is what we're talking about now is like, what does it start with? It start with it actually starts with nutrition. It starts with taking out foods that you're sensitive to and actually testing for that if you can, and then trying to cultivate a diet that's going to be healthy over the long term. And that's, it's many fold. You're also looking at your, your background, your ancestry, right? So if you are Northern European or you're African American or you're Pacific Islander, you're going to have a different nutritional, ancient, genetic, and manifesting on your biology differently than somebody that's Northern European. And all this really should be looked into and a lot of it also depends on how much light exposure you're getting, 
and how much other additional health focus you have under really. But for me, and when I'm talking to people, it's let's start with your diet. It's, you know, it can be relatively simple and coming back to it again, it's trying to take out processed sugar or added sugar and processed foods and dairy to start off with for most people. Let's take that and figure out, is that something that maybe not the average person, but Brad Barrett can do. So Brad Barrett has the time to clean up his nutrition. He has the focus for the two years. He like does everything the right way. He's got rid of all the things that you talked about. He's focused on the 80, 20 Mm -hmm. and he feels better, but he says, I want to know how I'm actually doing. So does he Google metabolomics facility? And then once you have that, like what a lot of the stuff you mentioned, there's a lot of data there, but is that information? Is that something that he can actually do something with once he has all that? That's a fantastic question because there's a lot of emphasis these days on genetic testing. And so looking at your genome and giving you risks of certain diseases that may or may not happen 20 or 30 years down the line. But that's not really helpful right now for most people. And you don't really know what that manifests actually real time at the cellular level. And so it's really important that the focus after somebody's cleaned up their diet and their overall health is, is actually doing the testing if they can. And so there are a couple of different labs around the country that do it. And the company that I am working with as the COO, it's called Health Optimization Medicine, I've mentioned is actually a nonprofit in and of itself looking to educate doctors and practitioners on how to practice health-focused care that I'm discussing. I have my own practice in the San Francisco Bay Area doing this, but there aren't that many doctors that are really looking at it this way. And one other piece I would mention is that We're looking at subtle changes in vitamin, minerals, cofactors, nutrients, toxins, et cetera, that are building up at the cellular level that may not manifest as an actual condition or a problem for 20 or 30 years later, but we can actually do something about it. So yes, this is clinically relevant what we're doing because we can actually see what's happening at the cellular level and actually balance at that level the subtle stuff that may not actually show up for another 10, 20, 30 years. So my concern always is the clinical relevance of what we're doing, because I'm a clinician at heart. I want to see what I'm doing actually in practice in the clinics, help people in real time. The challenge with some of the work that you're doing, though, in this capacity, and this is why I often marry the ideas of long-term sustainable health using health optimization medicine or home for short, by the way, along with the cool biohacking things out there that help people feel better faster So you have this combination of two, the two challenges that we have in our psyche, our evolutionary psyche, which is we want results now. (laughs) We want to know what we are now and get better now and feel better now versus the long-term sustainable stuff that really does give us the long-term health that we all need over our lives to have improved something called health span. The idea that we have as many healthy years on this planet as possible, and then we die versus lifespan, which is just as many years on this planet, not really even taking into account how many years are healthy. Because lifespan is going actually slightly down overall because of suicide and opioids, unfortunately, and narcotic overdose. But in general, health span is, is even taking a huger hit. Most people now into their 30s and 40s are, are on three or four medications already. And it's just crazy what we're seeing. So there really is a, a need here to, to look at a long-term sustainable health plan for patients, for clients, at the same time as giving them those initial impulses to make them feel better faster. And so I'm on both ends of those spectrum in my practice, and it, I care that people have uh, that access on both ends too. Hey, Scott, we're always looking for these 
actionable tips for the audience. And I, and I love where you said, if you did three things with nutrition, it would be take out processed foods, take out sugar, take out dairy. You also kind of slipped in there. Maybe take out carbs would probably be your bias. So that's like an 80, 20, like talk me through foods that you recommend. So obviously, of course, it's going to be specific based on the person, but are there, are there general foods that you say like, okay, these should be the backbone of anybody's, of anybody's diets or many, many people's diets. Someone that's not mm-hmm. on an alcohol only diet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, alcohol only will land you someplace. It won't be in the preventative care setting for the most part. <laughs> so yeah, Brad, that's a really good question. It's really difficult for me to actually answer that because I find that everybody has their own philosophy, politically, socially, philosophically, religiously. So it's difficult for me to give very specific recommendations. I can say with a little bit of a caveat is that most people who eat meat, clean meat, are healthier than those who don't. In general, from a, when I do their testing, I will say, when I look at their vitamin and mineral content and how they're doing on a cellular level, most vegans over the long term don't seem to be able to sustain themselves as robustly as those that have some meat in their diet. It doesn't have to be a huge amount of meat. It doesn't have to be the carnivore diet at all. But it seems that the bioavailability of these vitamins and minerals is much higher in meat products. And so when we're talking about meat as well, we're also looking for meat that's from good sources, pasture-raised, grass-fed, and not in concentrated animal feeding organization types of facilities. So in general, I find that people that eat some meat and mostly plants are better overall as far as long-term health, as as far as optimal performance than those that don't have any meat and those that just eat meat, you know, for example. So, um, or eat a lot of it, like sort of the paleo community tends to gravitate towards, which is a high meat, high protein kind of thing. So I guess what Michael Pollan said, eat mostly, eat food, mostly plants, I think. I actually agree with that wholeheartedly with the, the animal products being from good sources. So personally, I will say, you know, my diet is that. It's mostly a low-carb, grain-free existence, although I have four kids, so there are some grains in my home. <laughs> Uh, and so sometimes I will win. even not Cheerios, no, no Cheerios. <laughs> uh, but but other grains maybe, right? So occasionally I will have grains. But for me, my personal philosophy is one where it's mostly plants, lots of plants, along with good meat sources and some carbs, some grains sometimes, and then trying to avoid processed foods and added sugar. Now I am human, right? I will have dark chocolate. I will have even 72% dark chocolate sometimes, God forbid, right? So, oh my, oh my sugar, it's got Living be, on the edge, guy. Living on the edge, man. But, um, you know, I've experimented with the ketogenic diet. I know, Brad, you have as well. And I think that the ketogenic diet is great for some people. It's not great for everybody. I don't think it's a long-term sustainable plan for most people, actually. There's a guy named Rob Wolf, who you may know. Rob talks about something, I think something recently that he's talked about that I actually I think align very closely with is something called metabolic flexibility. The idea is that, you know, over the long term of the human race, we never really had one diet. It was a diet that was available to us at the time, at the time in our evolution, when we either in the ice age or we were in the tropics or whatever. So evolutionarily, we are metabolically flexible because we had to be. And so it's important for us to cultivate that. So in this context, talking about the ketogenic diet, that's a starvation 
imposed a starvation modulating diet. The idea is that we're putting our body into a, a state where we think that we're starving and we're using fat to burn. And that's great. That's what we needed when we didn't have food available to us back in the day. And we had to fight a war or we had to find that animal three days after not eating. Our body was able to take fat from our system and use that as fuel. And fat is a very clean burning fuel. It gives you a lot more energy per molecule of fat to burn and to make energy. So it's actually fantastic. If anybody's been ketogenic, they know that their mind is clearer. They have better overall sort of physical energy and mental energy. And that's great. But you also have to be able to burn carbs sometimes too, I think. And maybe as we get older, you need to burn less carbs. And that might be an interesting conversation and have more sort of low carb sort of Atkins-esque, maybe intermittent fasting being a good solution there. And we can talk about that if you want, because that's a big one for me and my clients. Because I feel like as we get older, our ability to process sugar actually does get worse. And this is scientifically proven as well. So that is part of this. But metabolic flexibility, I think, is really important. The idea is that you are ketogenic at some time, at some points. You are eating carbs at other points. And trying to actually pair that seasonally makes a lot of sense, too. In the sense that like when you're in wintertime and you don't have access to fruits, you don't have access to things that would be sort of a higher carb, you're having more soups and bone broths and meats. That's sort of evolutionarily what a lot of us did in the northern European climates or northern latitudes. And then when it's summertime, you're having more fruit, you're getting more sunlight exposure. And sunlight's a huge piece of this as well, that you're sort of evolving your diet as to a seasonal framework as to what your ancestors would have been. So I just, I think I just, that was like a verbal diarrhea of a lot of things. So <laughs> what do you, what do you guys want to talk about? <laughs> awesome. I actually would be very interested in having you slow down a little bit and talking about good fats and bad fats, mostly in the context of this, almost in the context of this historical look where our government, literally our government has told us for 30 years that we should be avoiding fats at all costs, mm -hmm. essentially through the DASH diet, the dietary approach to stopping hypertension. Right. And with that, I basically feel like if I look at a fat, any fat, I get fat. I mean, that's honestly, that's the bias that most of us carried with us into the nineties, early two thousands, probably still to some degree today. I feel like there's a shift going on right now, but still when I go to the grocery store, I go to Wegmans, whatever I'm looking at the dairy products, which are telling me I should probably taper down on, but I'm looking at yogurt. It's being marketed to me as low fat or no fat. If I look at, mm -hmm. you know, any sort of other products, cookies on the shelf, it's saying, Hey, low fat, like all these different things. They're like, telling me how that, oh, this is the one you should get because it's low fat. Unfortunately, that still exists. And it's all a product of marketing and a product of special interests back in the 1970s. And there's a lot of great work that's been done on this topic by several fantastic authors. One book that I would recommend if anybody's interested, it's called The Big Fat Surprise by Nina Techholtz. And she's a researcher that did a really great job I think telling the story about how it came to be that we thought fat was bad for us. And I, I say this to clients all the time. I wish there was a different word for fat than just fat because people think, well, I eat fat, I get fat. And it's difficult to change that, uh, that common feeling because of the words being the same. You know, we have a fat belly or we eat fat. But what's actually been interesting over the last 10 or 15 years is that we know if people just eat fat and no carbs, they get skinny, they lose weight, they become ketogenic. So we know that fat is not the entire answer. In fact, it's not the answer at all. 
let's say it's not the entire answer because if you have what we call a heart attack sandwich, which is a lot of fat, a lot of sugar, and a lot of carbohydrates, that's how we get atherosclerotic disease. That's how we get heart disease, brain disease, vascular disease is the combination of those three things together. So uh, that's what, another thing that I'll tell clients all the time. If you want to be vegan, fantastic, but you can't have a lot of fat because you can't have a lot of carbohydrates and a lot of fat at the same time. It's just not going to work out well. And if you want to be ketogenic, same deal. You can't have a lot of, well, obviously, if you want to be ketogenic, you can't have a lot of carbohydrates. But if you cheat all the time and have high carbohydrate foods on a ketogenic diet, that's also potentially going to cause a heart attack sandwich. So my thoughts here are pretty much that you have to really understand what all these macronutrients are supposed to do at the cellular level. And each of them are supposed to make energy, right? So fat, protein, and carbohydrates all can make energy, ATP at the cellular level. They're all doing it for various different reasons, depending on what your body is doing or how your body is acting. And a lot of this is very uh, person-specific, but each of them can give you fuel. And it's important to know that all three are available to you. But if you have all three in high combinations, the body is not going to like that, unfortunately. It's going to think that you have too much energy available, and then it's going to start ca causing rust or basically breakdown. And that's what we call inflammation. And then inflammation is what causes heart disease, vascular disease, et cetera. So when I'm talking to a client, and I'm talking about fat specifically, I'm very much aligning with them in their process of understanding where this came from. Fat is not bad. Fat is only bad if it's combined with a high sugar diet in general. And I didn't so hear you happened, put any caveats on like types of fat. I mean, you're, you know, is, is okay. there, is there almost a more nuanced answer and there are, there are different types of fat or are you just, is it, I mean, I realize there's always nuance, but when you say that, when you make that statement, are you quite literally just trying to separate the angst from the word fat or do we need to have that kind of Hey, avocado oil versus, hey, fried chicken. Good call. So I start with the category of fat, like we're discussing. And then, yes, there's good fats and there are bad fats, for sure. And the bad fats really fall into the category of, number one, trans fats. So those, they're hydrogenated fats. So anything that's hydrogenated is trans fats. And those are basically going to cause heart disease. And we know that very much. And the research has shown that not only in the alternative world, but also in the conventional community. So some other types of bad fats are the vegetable oils. The vegetable oils, especially when they're heated, they become oxidized and they cause high infl inflammatory loads on the system. So in general, I don't allow my kids to have anything that's cooked in vegetable oil in general. I'm a much bigger fan of the some of the polyunsaturated fats. So those are like the, the avocado oils, some of the nut oils as well. Um, the one specifically would be the macadamia nuts. Some of the other nuts like peanut oil is actually terrible for you. So, and again, peanut is actually not a nut. It's actually a legume for those who don't know. That's a little bit of a fine detail, but it's important when you're talking about oil specifically. So in my house and for my clients, we recommend actually saturated fat is okay. And that's another big shift that we've seen over the last 15 or 20 years is that saturated fats, coconut oil, butter, ghee are not bad for you. Again, they're not bad for you. These do not cause heart disease in it of themselves. Now, if you have these with a lot of sugar, that could be an issue. But if you don't, these are good oils. They can be heated to high levels and they're stable. And that's really important. Anything that's fried, for example, like all the fried chickens and the French fries and the McDonald's and stuff like that, it's all fried in vegetable oil that's very, very unstable. 
And when it's unstable, that means it's very, very susceptible to what we call oxidative stress. The stress that our body gets from a lot of different factors, from the environment, from toxins that we breathe in, from the foods that we eat that aren't good for us, from other aspects of our biology that are just not optimized. So if we have lots of stress in our body and we have these oils that we're eating, it's going to cause inflammation. It can cause things like heart disease. It can cause things like uh, cerebrovascular disease, you know, brain disease, neurodegeneration, et cetera. So for me, if that has been demonized, absolutely. There's some great books and some great research that's been done. And I would encourage your readers to take a look at it and see what's out there. So Dr. Scott, I have a two gallon jug of olive oil in my cabinets. You know how you're hoping for like justification for something that you've been using for years. Like I didn't hear you ah. say that on the approved list. What's going no, on? It is. It is. I forgot. Oh. <laughs> I forgot olive oil. <laughs> okay. So, um, olive oil is great, but I, I wouldn't cook with it. <sighs> Cooking with olive oil is not the best idea, especially at high heats. At low heat, it's good. Uh, but at high heat, it also oxidizes. Oh, I need so to rethink huge... my whole strategy here. Okay, this is really important. I, I yeah. need, this will be my big actionable takeaway because I cook with olive oil. What oils is it okay for me to use? So yeah, because I, I, so, I, use, I yeah. use oil for everything. Yeah, so for high heat cooking, the best things to use actually by smoke point. So what I mean by smoke point is that they don't oxidize until very, very high heats are avocado oil, macadamia nut oil, ghee, and coconut oil. And but coconut, you have to be careful too. You don't want to go too high. So for coconut and olive, you're really at 250, maybe 300 degrees Fahrenheit at the highest you want to go. And then the other ones can be higher. But any of the other oils, especially the vegetable oils, you don't want to cook at any temperature because they oxidize very easily. And the challenge with a lot of these oils is people reuse them, especially at the fast food places and at restaurants. They'll reuse some of these oils, especially to fry food. And it gets more and more oxidized the more it's used. And I can't even look at it. I mean, my favorite food used to be French fries. So uh, I can't even look at a French fry now because I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, how many times was that oil used before I got it fried? That is and poison so, in a delicious yeah. crunchy wrapper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, can, you can go to the store now. I mean, the challenge with everything, and you'll go to the store now, the, the grocery store, and you'll see potato chips that were fried in avocado oil. You'll see things that are sort of paleo or all, given all these brand names, you have paleo cookies, right? You have gluten-free cookies. Like it doesn't mean it's good for you because it's paleo or gluten-free or it's fried in avocado oil, right? It's still fried. It's still at high heat. So it's always important to, to take a step back and go, you know, what is the cleanest diet that I can have? And that's looking again, processed foods, low sugar, not added sugar. And in my mind, taking out dairy if possible, like I said, and my other philosophy, if, if people can consider going low carb, I think that's better for most people. So with fat, it really just depends on the person. If they're going to be vegan, they have to go low fat because they're going to have too many carbs. But if they're going to go low carbs, then that is a much better strategy for my philosophy in general. But then, then they can have the fat, but they can't have as many of the carbs. It's a trade-off. And so that's, that's how I roll with most clients. So Scott, what about organic and grass-fed? You know, the premium section at the grocery store. So the organic grass-fed tends to be higher in nutrient density than conventionally grown pesticide-filled foods. There's, of course, also the pesticides, and those are probably not good for us as well, as you'd imagine. So there was an interesting study that was done. I, I can't remember where it was, but they looked at organic versus non-organic fruits and vegetables. And they said that uh, there was no difference as far as the nutritional content of them. But the pesticide residue was much higher in the conventionally grown products. And they didn't know what to say about that. In my estimation, that's not a good thing. 
because people don't tend to wash their vegetables and fruits very well anyway. I don't know about you two, but in general, people don't tend to go to the go home and really wash their fruits and vegetables before they eat them. And so you're going to have a higher pesticide residue on things that are not organic. So in general, even if nutrient density is not terribly different between the two, although there's actually been other studies showing that there is a significant change in nutrient density for organic versus non-organic. Despite that, I still recommend organic produce as much as possible. That's not for all produce. There are some things that don't seem to be as necessary. So for example, avocados, which I'm a huge fan of, I bet, I bet you guys are too. Organic avocados are not that much different than regular avocados, for example, from the pesticide residue. Asparagus is another one. But berries, for example, have huge pesticide residues if you get them conventionally grown. So I don't recommend berries conventionally grown, but I do recommend organic berries if at all possible. What about carrots, like stuff that's buried in the ground? Well, it depends on the ground, right? It's very difficult to piece all this out, but even organic is not created equal, right? Uh, The types of organic soil that you have in one location are going to be different than others. But in general, organic soil is going to be better for vegetables, right? Because of the residues of other crops that may have been grown in that area that were non-conventional. And you can think about this in some of the rice crops that have been grown in a lot of fields that have arsenic laden rice as a result, unfortunately. So this is a huge issue. So arsenic is in the ground supply of a lot of soil. And so arsenic's not all bad. There are different types of arsenic. There's (laughs) organic and inorganic, good and bad is not really the category there. But in any respect, in general, you want to have soil that's been organically grown for many years rather than just transitioned over a couple of years. But even to get organic certification, you have to have that. So in general, the best way to get your food is locally, in season, and organically. And then when it comes to grass-fed versus conventionally raised meats, in general, what you're going to find is that the nutrient density is greater in the grass-fed. It's also much healthier as far as the fat ratios. And this comes into what's called the omega-3 ratios, the omega-3 and the omega-6, which are different types of fat that you get in meat products and fish products as well, which is a type of meat, but some people don't think of fish as meat. So just want to put that out there. But it's funny enough, Brad, actually my project, my fourth year medical school project was on this very issue is the nutrient density of grass fed versus conventionally raised beef. And somehow and actually looking at how the subsidies in our government for farming and farmers really reward a lot of the crops that they're the most chemically heavy and the most pesticide heavy, right? The, the corn, the wheat, the soybeans, right? That's where all the money goes from our government. It doesn't go to any of the organic stuff. It doesn't go to any of the pasture-raised beef and cattle and lamb and et cetera. So, you know, unfortunately, the, the U.S. is very much focused on the commodity crops and not focused on our health. And that's you know, across the board, even on the conventional side, we talked about insurance as well. So that's a long answer to my recommendation mostly is organic, pasture-raised, locally, and in season when at all possible. There are some exceptions. Like I mentioned, some vegetables don't need to be organic and still can be really great for you. Yeah, Scott, this is really, really helpful. And and I definitely want to move on to other aspects of health. But just one last question, just around nutrition and, and such is, what are your thoughts on like vitamins and supplements? Are they giving you basically expensive pee, as a lot of people say, or, or is there actually value there? The most important piece to understand, I believe, is that vitamins, minerals, and nutrients are important. <laughs> and 
the food that we're eating now is less nutritious than it was 50 years ago. So what do we do as a result of that? Do we try to eat more good food? Absolutely. Do we test and see what we're missing? I really, really think that we need to do that. Do we take supplements that can potentially help us replete things that we need that we are not getting? My opinion is yes, but only in the context of understanding what's happening at the cellular level and what you need. The challenge I find is that people are taking supplements because they heard it on a podcast or they heard it at a conference that I should take a multivitamin or I should take a B vitamin or I should take antioxidants. But if you're not taking these things and knowing that you're taking it for a reason and quantifying, in my estimation, what you need and why, and then testing over time, it could be dangerous. And we actually have seen that. If you over antioxidize, if you give yourself too many antioxidants, they become stressful, actually. They do the opposite of what you think they're going to do. And they also can make your own body's supply go down in response to infections and stress. So you, in my estimation, have to think about what is the holistic strategy here or how vitamins are going to help me, but only in the context of understanding what I need. Because people are taking supplements and they're taking tons of them. So what I need, so tying back to Brad Barrett on a mission to find a you know, metabolomics facility somewhere around the country here. <laughs> well, no, but even more than that, like if someone right now wanted to go find out their supplement levels, I, I'm pretty confident they can find out their iron level. They can find out their vitamin D level. I mean, are there other levels that can be tested for in your standard facility? You know, cause if not, mm -hmm. like, what does that mean? Because nobody, I, I bet you there's maybe one person, you know, just a few handful of individuals that have been to one of the labs that we talked about earlier in this. So like, if things were perfect, and you were on this plan, you were on this more optimized plan, what would the path actually look like in an idealized society? So I, in an ideal situation, you've already done all the, the real hard work on the ground. You've already changed your diet, your lifestyle. You're getting more sunlight. Your relationships are better. You're working on all sides to really cultivate your own health. And the next step or inside of that, or while you're doing it, you really want to get an assessment of how your cellular health is doing. And that's what health optimization medicine is all about. The idea on the nonprofit side of the company is to create a, an educational platform where doctors and practitioners can learn how to do this in their own practices and work with their clients, testing metabolomics, testing their blood analysis and urine and stool to look and see what is needed, what's required and what is not required. And then personalizing the supplement protocols to that physiology, to that person. And so it, right now, if you go to a doc in, in New York, if you go to a doc in California, if you go to a doc anywhere, and they're a functional medicine doctor, they likely will be able to do some of this work with you. But, the, but they'll also be likely looking for very specific markers that relate to your diseases, or your conditions. And that's, and that's okay. Because if you go to a conventional doc right now, the most that you'll get done, like you said, is maybe your B12 level, maybe your folate level, maybe your iron level, they're looking for disease-related markers. So you really have to think outside the box. And my practice in the Bay is health optimization medicine in San Francisco. And that's what I'm doing is that I'm creating these protocols and these plans for clients that create this foundation while they're also looking at some of these other holistic ideas of how it's important to look at things, not just in a silo with quantified data, but I think that's the really the anchor of it, but also looking at the health of your relationships and the sunlight exposure and your evolutionary biology and your exposure in your workplace and your home to toxins 
and all those other aspects that can be very, very important are very important to your overall health. Some people come to see me and they don't want to do anything different. They just want to get their blood, urine, and stool checked and then take some supplements and be on their way. Others like Brad are like really into their health and they want to do everything they can to really have this really fantastic foundation and also this model that can be sustainable over the long term. And at the same time, have fun in the process and do all these crazy biohacking stuff and learn about keto and whatever. So for me, it depends on where people are and where they want to go. But if I had to kind of bring it down to what everybody can do is start off with looking at this foundation that Brad would be doing or that I would be asking patients to do if they didn't have a lab that they could go to or a practitioner that they can go to, because not everybody's going to have one to start off with. Awesome. All right. Dr. Scott, would you be willing to take a couple of wild card questions? Of course. They've all been wild card questions, but these are really <laughs> out there. <laughs> all right. We're living in the future, it. right? We're on the path to Mars and humans have never lived longer. Like, what do you think? What is that upper cap? Let's say we nailed this, right? We got, we got it all dialed in. We had the system perfect. What is that upper range of human life? Not, you know, we're not talking about organs being replaced and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Just like you do things perfect. You live a clean life. You eat the best diet you can. Genetics are in your favor. How long can you live? Lots of different ways to answer that question. My focus these days is not on lifespan. My focus these days is on health span. The idea is that we have as many amazing years as possible before we die. And we accomplish what we'd like to accomplish in this world before we go. And to each person, that is going to be different. It could be at 55 years old. It could be at 155 years old. And what is that end number? I don't so much honestly care. <laughs> Love that. No, that <laughs> because, was the perfect reframe. Um, because I don't care about the number as much as I care about cultivating, I hope, a different philosophy that gives people as many fantastic years of fun, of joy, of connection, of love, of interaction, of connection. I think I said connection already. <laughs> <laughs> it's that important. <laughs> it is though. I mean, and connection, not only on the external, but con connection on the internal of who we are as people. And so my whole philosophy over the last several years has changed. I mean, like most of us growing up, in New York, Brad knows this well, it's about this sort of external environment and how it's sort of bludgeoning you all the time, either in good ways or bad ways, depending on what it decides to be. But what you learn as you get older, I think, is that it's a reframe in that everything starts with you. And then if you start the conversation or begin a conversation and then realize it starts with you, then none of that other external stuff matters. And then that's the idea. Once you start feeling better, once you start feeling healthier, then everything else starts to manifest from that. You start having better relationships. You start internally feeling better and knowing that it comes from you and that you have the ability to cultivate your own health. And that is a powerful thing. And then lifespan, okay, maybe you live longer, maybe you don't. In general, you probably will. Health span, that absolutely will get better. And that's what I care about. Uh, all right, so rapid fire questions for you. We talked about hyperbaric. What about cryogenic? Any thoughts there? So are you freezing your brain for a study over the long term to come back as an AI <laughs> well, machine? Well, you know, I have <laughs> I have sat for a presentation on that and been dutifully impressed. Didn't quite buy the policy, but I'm interested. Uh, no, actually, I was talking about what about getting the uh, the blankets, the cold blankets? So cryotherapy treatment is 
a category of cold treatment, right? Cold can be either water exposure, it can be air exposure, it can be blanket exposure. Um, in it could be a lot of different types of cold. But in general, we know that cold is good for us. And the reason why cold is really good for us is many. We think that cold is really good for actually coupling together our ability to make energy more efficiently at the cellular level. So that's really important. It also decreases inflammation. It also gives us a sense of well-being, which is obviously important. Coupling cold with very hot as well is a the Finnish idea, the idea of sauna and then running out and going to roll in the cold is also, there's a lot of significant health benefits we think to that from a longevity, from a quality of life perspective. And so I often use uh, cryotherapy and cryogenic types of therapy in the setting of the hyperbaric work I do as well, because when you actually use a cryotherapy machine, you're actually constricting all your blood vessels. And doing that is important because you're sort of maintaining your your blood flow to your heart and to your brain, which is important when you're in cold, of course. Then after you get out of the cold, you get this massive dilation of blood vessels that you can actually now harness by actually increasing the amount of oxygen in circulation and helping the body heal, detoxify. It's a pretty fantastic combination. So cold is something that everybody should have in their life. The easiest thing is a cold shower. And so you don't have to start off with a cold shower, but if you end with a cold exposure in your shower for five seconds even, but even you get the benefits seconds, after five seconds, even five seconds will help you. But if you can get to like a 30 second mark, I don't know how much cold you guys have done, but once you get to about a certain point, it's actually after that, that you don't feel it's cold anymore. And it's more of a psychological thing. And that's the psychological part that Wim Hof has done a lot of great work with. And a lot of others that are in the meditation space, because you actually have to get over the fear of being in cold. And once you get over the fear of being cold, you get to this sort of zen-like state after 30 seconds or so for most people where you're no longer cold. And another reason for that physiologically is that you've hyperventilated <laughs> because <laughs> you are in the cold and you've actually dilated blood vessels in your skin. And so you're not as cold either in that capacity. So I find cold great from a, from a physiologic perspective. It's, it's great for the, your health overall. It's also a great psychological tool to kind of break some of these patterns of, I can't do fill in the blank. By the way, in my house, can't is a four-letter word. There is no such thing as can't. But especially the stories that are created because of that, one of them for tons of people is cold. The other is that, that I can't eat because people don't think they can fast and still live. But that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> if only we had a long podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Scott, we're definitely going to have to get you back on. But okay, my rapid fire is your your type of exercise or mobility routine, like what, what do you, what do you do personally? So for me, I think it's a combination of high intensity interval training along with flexibility and doing them in some sort of combination most weeks of the year, unless I'm on vacation, unless my kids wake me up too early, those kinds of things. But for the most part, it's flexibility and it's strength training. I don't think cardiac endurance training, as far as sitting on a treadmill for an hour is really all that worth it for most people. I don't think evolutionarily we ever did that. It was more about the high intensity for short periods of time and less work on the sort of cardio side in general. But flexibility is really important, especially as we get older, keeping flexibility in your life, whether it's yoga, Pilates, uh, Tai Chi, Qigong, some other movement practice that really works on flexibility is really important. All right, Scott. So you mentioned actually Wim Hof and meditation in there. I'm curious. 
uh, your advice for a meditation practice? Like I know some people like Mark Devine on his podcast talks about box breathing and Wim Hof has his type of breathing. Like, do you subscribe to any in particular or what do you recommend generally? So as far as breathing goes, uh, there's a lot of different practices, like you said, and I think they're all very good depending on the person and how much you resonate with that philosophy. I, I think Wim Hof's breathing practices are fantastic. They're based on a lot of Eastern breathing techniques. It's nothing really technically new. What he's really done is combined it with cold, which is a relatively new combination. Although, as we know, combinations like this have been in, in existence for many, many years. Um, I think breathing is important <laughs> in general, of course. Uh, my sense of it is that if anybody really wants to start, just start with noticing your breath and how you breathe in general. And there's a couple different technologies that I use actually that help with this. There's one company that I've been, been testing recently. They're called Leaf Therapeutics, L-I-E-F. And they have a, what's called a heart rate variability monitor that you stick on your chest and actually helps you understand what your heart is doing on a beat-to-beat -beat basis and helps you understand how your breath manifests in your heart stress levels. So I think that's really important. So I'm working on more of a tech side now on the breathing and trying to see how best to kind of integrate that into my life. Because I feel like, I, I mean, I love to meditate, and I'll talk about that now, but you, you know, most people can't meditate for two hours a day. I, it's just not possible. So, I mean, the best meditators out there, yeah, they'll, they'll do that. But for me, it's sort of the most return on investment on the shortest periods of time you can. And, and I kind of ascribe the Tibetan philosophy of micro-meditation. The idea is that you take time at least every hour to just notice things around you and be more observing of the present moment. And then inside of that, or inside of my day, I try to have between 15-minute blocks at least three times where I practice something that I, people call you know, mindfulness, you know, the idea of your, sort of your mind is sort of present and in full. I like to think of it more as an emptiness or as an awareness instead of a mindfulness, and just practicing that along with some music. Usually at one of the apps, I use the Brain FM app, which I really like a lot. Um, there's others out there that are great. Um, there's some that are free. One's called the Inside Timer. If you have any interest there, that's a really good one as well. But I use that as a way to keep me sort of refocused, as all of us do have a tendency to uh, devolve into our own sort of you know, world, our, our delta, I'll call it our brainwave delta, where we start sort of kind of dreaming, but kind of not be awake in the sort of the theta state too. But anyway, so I use those to help me. But my idea in general is to take time each hour as a micro meditation of awareness. And then between 15 minutes, three times a day, when I wake up in the morning, sometime in the middle of the day and at night to have more of a, an awareness time to really focus on my present moment. All right, Scott. Now, on most shows, that would be the end of the episode. But on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Scott, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own. Favorite blog that's not my own. Well, I think Tim Ferriss's blog has been great over the years. He's a really great researcher. 
And he has a really great way of actually delving into the details. He's done some great work on cancer, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. That's when I come back to over and over. So I'll give that as the answer. All right. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. Now, this can be one that you wrote or someone else's. Favorite article of all time. Oh, my God. That's a really tough question. Let me come back to that one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if we've ever done these out of order. Okay, we'll come back to it. Question number three, your biggest life hack. My biggest life hack was having children. (laughs) Okay, I I think that deserves, yeah, I think it deserves a 10-word explanation. The 10 words would be that you learn so much more about yourself when you don't have yourself to worry about only anymore. When you're responsible for other beings in the world and understand that they have this beautiful capacity for love and that everything else is just details, that you realize that's your capacity too. And you come back to that. That was my change. That was my transition point was when I was broken from my first daughter who wouldn't stop crying. And I couldn't figure out why why, why she was doing this to me. (laughs) And I I realized it had nothing to do with her and everything to do with me. So my biggest life hack was having children. Wow. That's an incredible answer. All right, Scott, question number four. So this is ostensibly a personal finance show, right? So your biggest financial mistake, my biggest financial mistake was not having a financial plan. When I first finished medical school and got into residency, I had no concept that even though everybody tells you, oh, you're going to start making more money, you should start saving money. (laughs) I did not take that advice. And uh, I started making more money. So I had bigger things to spend money on, more houses, more dogs, kids, those kinds of things without kind of taking the advice of others in the process. So now that I'm further down the line and I've now have my own practices, I'm much better about a lot of that. But like a lot of people do when they first finish medical school, uh, they got blinded by the fact that they no longer were poor. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a stark difference, that graduation point, especially for doctors. Question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. Oh man, that's a really good question too. The advice that I would give my younger self is to stop thinking that everything had to do with other people and it didn't have to do with you. <laughs> because I think a lot of times, you, I mean, I, know, I don't know about you, Brad, growing up in New York, People are are sarcastic all the time. People are pessimistic all the time. And I used to call myself a realist, like somebody who just thought that, you know, this is the real world. This is how things happen. But when you're more of a realist, you're really more of a pessimist. And that's really what it comes down to. And and I fortunately married uh, somebody that was like the consummate optimist. And that was fantastic for me to realize that, oh, you can be optimistic about things too. (laughs) And she would always say to me, Scott, being a realist just means that you're a pessimist. And so if I had to give myself advice, I would say, Scott, you're not a realist. You're a pessimist. Think about how you could reframe that to be more optimistic and realize that this external world is just hitting you with all this stuff, but you have a lot more control of your own biology. You have a lot of control of of your own psychology than you realize. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a lot more eloquent version of of how I would have described it. But I have had those exact same thoughts. I I used to be maybe type A personality I used to describe myself as, or maybe realist would be another perfect word, but at its core, it was pessimistic. And it was these forces are acting upon me as opposed to how I look at the world determines what happens, right? Because it's your story, right? Right. And it's it's amazing. And I've changed 
really 180 degrees and, and it's just made for a much better life. So yeah, that's a marvelous answer. And hey, Scott, we've got one last. No, 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 no. Oh. Don't get away that quick. Question number article. two, your favorite article of all time. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> we circled back. You scared me there. John. <laughs> so thanks for circling back. I had to think about this for a minute because my life has changed so significantly over the last five or 10 years, oh, definitely in the last 10 years, but even more so in the last five. And as I've transitioned, and this kind of goes to the thoughts that we just had about, we all have our stories that we stick to and don't realize that we have the ability to change them. And so I've read a lot more about consciousness, about meditation, about ancient and Eastern practices, et cetera, over the last several years. And one article sticks out to me that I had forgotten about until you asked the question, and it's 15 tips, how to become a master alchemist and transmute energies. So it's a little out there, but it's it's fantastic. It's from a, a site called The Wake Up Experience. I would encourage those that are open to new ideas. I mean, the 15 tips are not that crazy. Actually, some of the explanations might sound like it, but like number one is be grateful. And number two is disidentify with your ego. Uh, number three is forgive yourself and others. These are really important concepts for all of us. So I think that's been one of the more transformative articles that I've read in the last couple of years. Awesome. We'll link to it in the show notes for sure. All right, Brad, you can ask your bonus question now. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, buddy. Well, it was certainly worth the wait for the answer to question yep. number two. So thanks, God. And all right, the bonus question is the purchase that you've made in the last, let's say, 12 months or so that's added the most value to your life. Oh, this is an easy one. I had a, a surprise fourth child on the way. And initially, I was very shocked and kind of shocked is the best way I can say it. And, uh, and so when that happened, I have a pretty small house. I live in the Bay Area. And I realized that I have a three-bedroom, one-bathroom home. And I'm going to have four children in it with my wife and I. And I was going to be very, very much crowded. And so I decided that I needed my own room. So I bought myself an infrared sauna. And it's my favorite purchase that I've ever made, one of the most expensive as well. But I go in my infrared sauna three, four times a week. I go in there for 30 minutes to 45 minutes. And it's the most fantastic way to meditate, to even watch movies sometimes if I want to go that route and just sort of be by myself. So it's my room. Nobody else is allowed in there. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm talking to the same person over here. <laughs> Oh, oh my God, Scott, I am such a fan of saunas. And so, okay, can you send us the sauna that you purchased so we can put it in the show notes or? Yeah, like the sunlight and sauna, I believe. Awesome, nice. man. Okay. Dr. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been so generous with your time and this information. And it's not information that we could have gotten on our own. So we're very grateful. That's my pleasure, guys. Someone's listening to this and they want to find out more about, uh, you know, the work that you've been doing. What is the best way for someone to contact you? So best ways, I have a website that's, focused on my hyperbaric career, my hyperbaric care. It's integrativehbot.com. You can go check that out. I also have a Facebook business site with the same name. For health optimization medicine, there is homesf.co, H-O-M-E-S-F.co. And there's also healthoptimizationmedicine.org. That's the nonprofit educational site where we have our educational material, educational coursework for clients, as well as practitioners and doctors that want to get certified in health optimization medicine. I think those are the best places. I do have a Twitter account, but I'm just not that great at it. Uh, at Dr. Schur, and I'm on Instagram, Dr. Scott Schur. 
that's what it is. <laughs> awesome. Dr. Scott Sure, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It has been my pleasure, guys. Thank you. Brad, I was actually, even as we were recording, was shocked by the scope of what we were able to cover with this particular episode. It was ambitious <laughs> at the beginning, but <laughs> Scott delivered. Yeah, he was incredible. And yeah, hopefully this is the first of many episodes of Scott because this is just scratching the surface of what's really a fascinating topic. And obviously, I mean, right up there with personal finance as really the most important thing that's going on in your life, right? I mean, health and personal finance for us, I mean, that's that's about it. So to have an expert on this level is really phenomenal. And I know personally, I have some actionable takeaways just myself. The what should you cook your food in? I have a two gallon jug of olive oil in my cabinet right now for the sole purpose of cooking my foods in a healthy way. That's what it's there for. And <laughs> it's a two gallon mistake. I will fix this $17 <laughs> problem right now. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome, man. All right. If you got value from today's episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Just let the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of Fi, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free. And just go to chooseify.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.